Welcome to Euractiv's Tech Brief podcast. My name is Laura Kabelka. I'm Euractiv's tech reporter from Berlin. For an overview on all things tech in the EU, sign up to a free Tech Brief newsletter or visit our website, euractiv.com. This week, we are looking at the CHIPS Act, which the European Commission proposed in February this year and which the European Parliament is currently discussing. It aims to ensure the EU security of supply, resilience and technological leadership in semiconductor technologies. It also intends to help the EU reach its ambition to double its current market share to 20% by 2030, though it is unclear how this percentage should be reached exactly. The proposed CHIPS Act has three main pillars. Pillar one is for supporting research development and innovation policies through the Chips for Europe initiative. Pillar two is a new framework to secure supply by attracting large-scale investments in production capacities. And Pillar 3 describes a coordination mechanism between member states and the Commission to monitor the supply chain and anticipate crises. Today we will dig a little deeper into this complex file and potential issues. I am very happy to be joined by two experts from the German think tank Stiftung Neue Verantwortung namely Julia Hess, Project Manager Technology and Geopolitics, and Jan-Peter Kleinhans, Project Director Technology and Geopolitics. So first of all, would you want to share your general views on this act? What do you expect to work out pretty smoothly? What could be difficult and what aspects could be changed in your views and why? When we look at the CHIPS Act, um, I think it is important to also take into context um, the developments uh, during the last two years, because especially in the semiconductor value chain, there were many political disruptions and also tensions um, that led to pressure on um, policymakers um, and discussions on security of supply, technological competitiveness and strategic dependencies. And in the midst of all this uh, crisis, governments realized that they need to define a new, a more active role and find effective tools for political intervention, which is particularly reflected in the third pillar of the EU CHIPS Act, because investing in research and development and in chip design, um, which is part of the first pillar, and also talking about um, subsidies is something that is also in parts new, but um, we think that the, the most tricky part and also the most far-reaching part is um, the one on um, pillar three, the monitoring and uh, crisis response part. And we believe um, this is the case because in this pillar, governments address two very important um, questions. First, they have to cope with a lack of transparency And second, they try and try to find ways to, to control the semiconductor value chain to intervene more. And what we believe is that um, the monitoring mechanism as well as the four crisis response tools uh, that are meant to um, anticipate and mitigate the disruptions are unfortunately not effective when looking at the characteristics and dynamics of the semiconductor value chain and also the very diverse product it uh, generates. So We believe that the most work has to be done in Pillar 3, and we also believe that um, the focus is um, 
prominently on this pillar because of these very new forms of um, policy intervention that are proposed there. You already said that your uh, work focuses on the third pillar. Can you tell us a little bit more about your two papers that you already published? Regarding the pillar three, as Julia mentioned, our, our interest was um, in pillar three because um, here we see that the European Commission wants to shape and define a new role for member states uh, and governments in general um, in the semiconductor ecosystem. Um, and that's why in our um, first paper in the series, Government's Role in the Semiconductor Value Chain, um, we focus on the monitoring part uh, to look at to what extent is the proposed monitoring in the EU Chips Act um, fit for purpose. So to what extent is it an effective and efficient tool to anticipate shortages uh, and to alleviate disruption of supply which is the, the stated goal um, of this uh, monitoring in, in the EU CHIPS Act. And then the second paper that was just released focuses um, on what we think would be a more worthwhile endeavor for, for governments um, to look at the value chain or assess the value chain, not with a focus to anticipate shortages and uh, have a highly granular um, monitoring of um, the, the flow of goods, of, of supplies, but um, to have more of a bird's eye perspective um, and to look at this value chain um, in the long term to identify interdependencies, to uh, identify choke points, to assess um, strategic capacities and dependencies from a European perspective and to simply understand Europe's position in this global ecosystem and to what extent um, reliance on foreign technology providers um, comes with certain risks um, for the European ecosystem and what to do about it. Um, because ultimately, as Julia mentioned, we, we don't think that um, currently this, this, let's say, heavy-handed approach that the European Commission envisions for, for governments um, in this value chain. So um, to have first a very close-knit um, monitoring of the supply chain, and then in the second part, in the in the crisis response toolbox, um, they talk about priority rated orders. They talk about export restrictions. Um, uh, they talk about uh, common purchasing. And we don't think that uh, um, that these tools are are fit for purpose. And uh, in times of shortages, we we don't think that they really help uh, to ensure security of supply. Could you go a little bit into detail of why you are criticizing this government monitoring of the supply chain and who should be doing it instead and what your proposal is for what the governments could be doing instead? JP already already mentioned the high granularity of data the the commission is seeking and um, needs to to anticipate um, shortages, and we believe that this data, which is a very sensitive um, business data such as lead times, inventory levels, or demand forecasts, is something that should be in the hands of the actors that are within the value chain, so the industry and the end customer industry. And we have like three reasons um, to, to make this more understandable. So first, 
this is really related to saying, okay, this data needs to be in the hands of people who are in the value chain because governments are not part of the value chain. So for them, it is very difficult to obtain sensitive data from the industry. This could only work if the industry has a trust relationship with the government and a very clear incentive by sharing this very sensitive data with governments would be beneficial for them. Another problem is the market forecasting, which is a very, very difficult job. You can see this because even experienced market analysts have a very hard time to get it right and they were not able to predict the 2020 shortages. And last but not least, the EC needs to invest substantially in capacities, including expertise from different backgrounds. If you really want to make sense of the data you are seeking in the monitoring approach. So this means that you need people who have market expertise, technical expertise and supply chain expertise. And most importantly, these three challenges arise first and foremost because of the goal to anticipate shortages. So we think this is the main problem, that the goal is wrong. So it does not mean that governments should not seek information, but they should seek information on the value chain to better understand the characteristics, dynamics, and interdependencies that are at play. Because this is very crucial, and um, I think we will come back to that later, um, to really have a meaningful objective within their room for action and not outside their room for action. And we believe that it's definitely not anticipating value chain disruptions and that this should be in the hands of the industry and the end users. Maybe just to, to add to that um, with an example, what, um, what what the key challenges are when you talk about highly granular data uh, to understand uh, disruptions of supply. So let's take um, the scenario of um, the the recent Fukushima earthquake in March, uh, mid March this year. So unfortunately, there was another rather strong. Um, earthquake close to Fukushima and um, among others, um, Renesas Fabs. Uh, so Renesas is, is an important um, Japanese automotive chip supplier. And um, three of their Fabs uh, were completely disrupted by this um, earthquake. So you could argue that, well, this could be a major event. And since automotive chips are already in short supply, um, a disruption of manufacturing for weeks or potentially months uh, could lead to further disruptions um, of uh, car manufacturing. So in the eyes of the European Commission, this is completely um, in the scope um, of their monitoring because they say they want to monitor natural catastrophes and disruptions of supply to anticipate shortages. That's the entire goal of the monitoring. But if you take this event of the um, shutdown of, of three fabs of a strong automotive chip supplier. In order to understand and to anticipate um, to what extent um, this shutdown of three fabs actually leads to a loss of production um, of automotive chips, and then as a second order effect, as a loss of production of, um, of cars, you actually have to have access to highly granular data. As an example, you need to understand what types of chips were actually manufactured in these three fabs. So if we just limit ourselves to automotive microcontrollers, so not any automotive chip, but microcontrollers, 
then even if you know specifically which types of microcontrollers Renesas uh, manufactured in this fab, you also need to know um, the inventory level of these microcontrollers at the OEMs, so the car manufacturers themselves, the inventory level uh, of these microcontrollers at the distributors, um, because many of those chips um, are not bought directly from the manufacturer, but they are bought from distributors such as AVNet um, uh, and others. Then you need to understand um, or need to know the inventory levels of tier one suppliers, uh, because mainly um, car manufacturers such as Volkswagen or BMW or Ford, they don't buy every single chip by themselves, but they, they buy a braking system from Continental or from Bosch that uses microcontrollers from Infineon or Renesas or NXP. So you need to also understand this microcontroller, what is the inventory level at the tier one automotive supplier such as um, Continental or Bosch or others. Then you need to understand, okay, this particular microcontroller in this particular application, could it actually be substituted with a different microcontroller from a different manufacturer? So especially with um, off-the-shelf microcontrollers, um, it might be that in this particular braking system, how this microcontroller is used, you could substitute the Renesas microcontroller with one from Texas Instruments or from NXP or from Infineon. And this already shows you the amount of highly detailed, highly granular, not just industry-specific, but company-specific uh, knowledge you would need in order to, at the end of the day, understand, okay, if these FAPs uh, are shut down for three weeks, most of our European um, car manufacturers are fine. If we go into five or six weeks, we might start to have a problem. If we go into eight weeks, um, this will really disrupt um, our production. In order to have such an assessment, the amount of information that you need, in our opinion, cannot be meaningfully acquired by any government, but has to be answered by the end customer industry itself and by, by um, the monitoring of the supply chain by the industry itself. So what uh, tasks do you foresee then for the governments to take over? We already got in the very uh, nitty-gritty details um, of the complexity of the semiconductor value chain. So maybe it helps to, to first take a step back and look at the complexity of the ecosystem from the outside. Because if, if you look at it from the outside, you realize that any type of policy intervention needs to take into account the characteristics and dynamic of the value chain. And we also got a glimpse that it's not that easy to, to understand the value chain. And it's very complex that you have to address different levels and um, you have to cope with very different products and markets. And so what we believe what governments have to do first and foremost is do a long-term strategic value chain mapping. And this may sound um, as if we are just talking about a different word for monitoring, but we believe that it is very important to, to understand that in the current climate with geoeconomic measures such as sanctions and export restrictions are, are on the rise, we believe that 
you have to understand the interdependencies and choke points of this uh, very value chain. But to understand these interdependencies and choke points, you first have to get a very in-depth understanding of the value chain. And we believe that this mapping idea would build the fundament to now understand and assess market dynamics, technology trends, and also competitive positions. So this is a mapping exercise that is not an idea for a short-term solution. We are thinking more about a long-term strategic policy that is informed by this mapping approach. And it would definitely need significant resources within the government to really be effective and inform these geoeconomic measures as well as also inform policymakers where it makes sense in this very transnational value chain to, to strengthen international partnerships and be aware of the strengths and weaknesses of the local ecosystem, but also of the global value chain. So this type of mapping would then be the key to any policy intervention that is already in the scope of governments. So addressing geoeconomic measures, as well as being aware of the fact that we are navigating a very complex interdependent value chain that always needs to be accounted for in its whole transnationality. Regarding the, the transnationality, um, I think both what, what um, Europe and um, the US with the US chips like are, are struggling with um, right now or are ambivalent about is that um, to what extent governments are really honest um, with themselves that they talk about a value chain that will continue to be transnational. And because in, I would say that uh, even more in the US than in Europe, um, you have uh, recurring um, conversations about reshoring manufacturing and essentially kind of bringing back or bringing home um, large parts of the value chain. Uh, I think, especially for Europe, this is actually not in our best interest. And unfortunately, if we look at language within the CHIPS Act, uh, talking about um, gaining 20% uh, global production share by 2030, um, it feels that sometimes policymakers are actually talking about um, becoming less dependent on the global ecosystem and it being, being able to um, increase independence or increase autonomy uh, in, in this ecosystem. Um, but what we are arguing is that before we um, substantially invest and essentially subsidize um, a lot of companies in this area, uh, governments should, first of all, better understand what dependencies we should actually be worried about uh, and what type of de dependencies or capacities of, of Europe we should actually um, strengthen in the long term. So I would argue, for example, that 10, 20 years down the road, Europe would do well to still have companies um, that own crucial positions within the value chain. The best example is ASML in the Netherlands having a monopoly for a certain type of lithography equipment. But this is just the, the most 
a prominent example, but there are many other European companies, especially in the supplier market, um, so chemicals and, and equipment that are indispensable to this global ecosystem. So just like we rely on TSMC in Taiwan uh, to manufacture uh, a cutting edge um, smartphone chip, TSMC in Taiwan relies on equipment from the Netherlands and chemicals from, uh, from, from Europe uh, to produce that chip. And I think we should, as a general note, um, in Europe, uh, on, on the policy level, we should maybe pay less attention to market shares and production shares and think more of ter um, in, in terms of leverage and owning crucial positions, choke points, really, um, in the long term in this uh, value chain. And uh, for that, you first need to understand this value chain. So that, that's why we propose um, this mapping. Could you give us a short outlook of what we can still expect from your third paper that is coming up? The third paper um, tries or will try <laughs> to tackle um, all the questions relating to crisis response. Um, and why we actually um, will publish it, not right now before the summer break, but will take a little bit more time, is that um, a lot of the conversations uh, or a lot of the proposals in the EU CHIPS Act regarding crisis response um, are actually mirrored in the currently drafted uh, Single Market Emergency Instrument, um, or SMEI. And you may have um, read that, or some of the, of the um, audience may have read that, nine European member states wrote a letter to the European Commission arguing that the single market emergency instruments uh, and the um, proposed measures in there, so export restrictions, common purchasing, so as we said before, a rather heavy-handed approach to um, supply chain management in times of crisis, um, that these go far beyond the initially um, envisioned measures uh, in this uh, single market emergency instrument. Um, so fundamentally, again, we talk about the role of governments in times of crisis uh, regarding essentially private company value chains. Again, from Julia and my perspective, we, we think there is a role to play for governments. Um, but we we don't think um, that the current envision, currently envisioned um, tools are fit for purpose when looking at the semiconductor um, ecosystem. And I would argue that even with those tools present in 2020, they would have done very little uh, to alleviate the chip shortages um, that are that are happening since 2020 in the in the global supply chain. Great. Maybe one quick last question. Uh, do you know what the next steps at the EU level are for this act? From our understanding, um, the, the big next step is really the, the opinions um, or amendments from the committees in the European Parliament. Um, and many of these will happen not before winter. Uh, so in some committees, it is tabled for um, December um, and then the lead committee, ITRE, um, uh, will also decide uh, most likely not before January next year. And then we have the, um, the ongoing trilogue. Um, so our understanding is that 
on a best case timeline, we talk about first quarter next year um, of a finalized for, for a finalized uh, CHIPS Act. That's it for this week. Don't forget to sign up to a free Tech Brief newsletter to receive a comprehensive overview on tech affairs in the world of European politics and policy directly in your mailbox. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. I am Laura Kabelka and thank you for listening. <laughs>